Jack, uh, it's really a treat for me. I, I volunteered to host Palmer for this weekend, and I, I did give the name to, to Kathy, and I'll give you a very brief backstory on it. Uh, you know, things happen to me. My, 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 my job apparently is to pay attention when God's giving me a little message. And about 24 years ago, I, I had a, a friend of mine, a lot of you knew, Priscilla Buckley, gave me my very first speaker tape. It was a CD, it's a little box of magnetic tape on a reel inside. Same as the back of your credit card, except really long. And uh, I listened to that tape until you could see through it. And it changed my life. And I made a determination to meet the woman whose voice was on that tape. And uh, I, I heard that she was coming to California from Texas. And she was going to have dinner with the girls at Priscilla's house. So I called Priscilla on the phone. And I said, hi, Priscilla. And she said, I was wondering when you were going to call. <laughs> And I crashed the all-girl party, and I met my friend Arbutus O'Neill, who uh, I became very good friends with, and I got to spend some time with her, and we talked frequently on the phone. And I heard an AA speaker not long ago say, and he was talking about sponsorship and about working with other people, and he said, God never puts two people together for the benefit of only one. And that was my experience with Arbutus. We had a two-way street on the stuff that went on there. And a year ago, I was coming back from a conference, and the taper, who's a friend of mine, people kept telling me, have you ever heard Palmer? Have you ever heard Palmer? When you talk at these things, you're the only Alan on there. It's all AAs in you. So we, he'd be there the year before or the year after, and we don't get to meet each other. And I'd say, no, I've never heard him. And finally, the speaker got tired, the taper got tired of asking me that, and he slammed a CD on my chest. I said, here, take this. And I was driving home from San Francisco and I plugged it into the tape player in my truck and I, I listened to about three quarters of it and I called the taper up and I said, I really need to have this guy's phone number. I think we're supposed to talk. And I called Palmer out of the blue in, in Miami, Florida, and he was kind enough to take my call. I think we were on the phone for about 45 minutes. And we began to establish a relationship which only existed on the telephone up until today. And I really believe that God never puts two people together for the benefit of, of only one and I'm really excited to, to share my friend Palmer with you here. Come on, Palmer. Thank you. Hello, y'all. Uh, my name is Palmer. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I came into this fellowship March 5th of 1990, and I am so grateful for that time, as is my family. I... Uh, and, and I mean, you know, I, I came in broken and, and, uh, and you know, the, the ride has been just incredible. But before I get going, I really want to thank Kathy for inviting me. I didn't know that you were guilty of putting my name in, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> it is a privilege and an honor to be here. It's, I, I love being asked to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous because you saved my life. And for you to share the podium with us is, uh, I, I can't express my gratitude. I will do anything that I am asked for Alcoholics Anonymous because of what you have done for us, the family. Um, and I truly mean that because it's not, I mean, I hear people say, well, you share the disease, you might as well share the recovery. Um, and joking aside, I think that, that uh, your greatest gift to me is sharing your recovery so that I didn't have to stay out in the disease. And I want to thank you for that. Um, the I want to thank the committee for inviting me. It's been a, a wonderful experience so far up until this moment. Uh, <laughs> and I want to thank uh, Jack and his wife Leslie and Hannah and Mia for opening their home to me and, and feeding me and, and just being. I mean, we have, we have had a delightful time driving all over. They, uh, Jack picked me up Thursday, and, and we've been all over Los Angeles, and I'm taking home. I've been looking for a ghost or some mechanical thing to hang up on my, my, uh, my house because I love when the children come in to, you know, hand out candy. And been looking for something that's not too scary, but Halloween enough to hang out at my house, and I found it when we were down in uh, somewhere. I, you know, <laughs> it's all Los Angeles to me. <laughs> so... Um, so I am grateful. I am grateful. Uh, that's not always the case. 
Um, you know, I don't know how I got to Allen. I grew up in a home that was, uh, I was, I, I mean, I had everything I needed. I was loved. My parents loved me. Um, you know, it wasn't an alcoholic home. Uh, I wasn't abused. I have, you know, a lack of story there, I guess. But, um, you know, both my parents, my mom and dad, were both physicists on the Manhattan Project and brilliant. I mean, they really were brilliant. My sister I don't know how she does it. Kind of like Keith Lewis. Some of you may have known him. He had his brother, Dumb Danny. My sister's like that. You know, she graduated from high school at something ridiculous age, like 16. You know, she was brilliant. And she went to college and got out in three years. Got her Ph.D., had one job as a, uh, you know, on the uh, faculty at Oklahoma State University and, you know, just retired. I mean, I don't know how you do that. I was the (laughs) stupid one in my family. And, I mean, you know, and I got through classes and all my teachers said, well, how come you can't be like her, meaning my sister? Um, and I couldn't. I couldn't. Now, to be fair, I suffer from a disease of perception. My teachers never said that. That's just what I heard them say. And I could never live up to Meg. So I just I was uh, the clown, you know, and I said, screw it. I'm not doing that. Uh, um, and and so uh, I mean, you know, I kind of uh, hip-hop long and, and got out of high school. Um, but, you know, I just was, I was, grew up, I was steeped in fear. I was just, I could not exist among you. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to be around more than one person. And, and I really felt like if, if I had a date with one person and I didn't show up, I wouldn't be missed. You know, I didn't know I didn't know how to cast a shadow. I mean, I just couldn't cast a shadow. It was as if the day, you know, the week I was supposed to be born, uh, you know, God gathered everybody up and said, and, you know, we're going to have, um, you know, God's going to talk to you about what you need to know on earth. And I had to go to the bathroom and I left and came back and, and, and he was finished up saying, and that's everything you need to know on earth. <laughs> And I missed the instruction set. I don't know. I, I just don't know how to be around people. Um, and I certainly don't know how to exist without fear. I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I just, I mean, it's just, just a terrible experience for me growing up. And uh, I remember um, in eighth grade, 13, uh, somebody came over. We were staying. We were having a party before church the next day in my basement, and somebody came up with Colt 45, and I had my first drink, and I remember that very well, vividly, and I got just crazy drunk. Now, I, before we get further, I am the Alan speaker, you know, but. <laughs> And I've heard people say, you know, if you remember your first drunk, you're probably an alcoholic. Um, and, and um, you know, I've, I've done inventories on it, and uh, no, I'm not an alcoholic. But um, the thing that separates me is that I know it did not work for me. You know, I, I, uh, I, it, was a, it was a crazy night. I woke up in the morning just deathly sick and puking and hungover and everything. And had to go to church that way. Fundamental difference there. You know, the magic didn't happen for me. You know, that an alcoholic talks about feeling the, the power going down to their fingertips and the, uh, you know, the, the, all of a sudden their shoulders coming down and them feeling comfortable in their skin. That doesn't happen for me. I just got sick. <clears throat> now, my friends in AA say, you know, Palmer, you can work through it and get to the good stuff. <laughs> And but I'm a quitter, you know. I'm a quitter. I just, I'm a wimp, and I just didn't, you know. I just didn't do it. It wasn't worth it. And so, but you know, for me, there was always something out there which is going to fix me. And if so, if I just leave home and get as far away from home as I can, I will be okay. And so I went to school in Portland, Oregon from Los Alamos, New Mexico. And, and I figured that, that I will be okay there. Now, when I arrived there, I fell in with a crew of people that, that uh, you know, we drank, and uh, this was the 70s. We did inhale, and, uh, <laughs> and everything else. I mean, 
I don't once remember when somebody handed me a tablet saying, oh, gee, what is this? You might not like me. So I'd just say, sure, I'll take it. And, and whatever it was, I took because they may not like me. And so I did this. I, you know, I've done a lot of inventory, and I found out that, that every time I did anything, there was another person there. And I, they had the power over me because of that feeling of, oh, my God, you know, I've got to make them okay so that I'll be okay so that I can be okay. And, uh, and I did a lot of things that were cer- I was certainly not brought up to do in order to make them okay. Um, I lasted, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's really neat to be back in Southern California. I had my first encounter with a her down here. Um, I, I met her coming off the airplane, and I was coming off the plane, and she and another gal met me at LAX. And, and she'd been trying to escape from an ashram in, in New Mexico that... Um, there were some uh, disciples of Charlie Manson living there. And she was part of that crew. You know, oh, come on, you guys had a fixer-upper, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so we, were, we were hitchhiking down Sunset Strip heading for Oregon because I had to go back to school. And... Um, we went into this uh, health food store to get something, and she was sitting on the porch, uh, the front step, because she had a headache, and came out, and she was gone. I mean, I we spent four days looking for her on Sunset Strip, never did find her. I heard later she was okay up, and she just went up to Indiana instead. I mean, you know, it was that kind of time. <laughs> so we left for Oregon four days late. Uh, the other guy and I and ended up, you know, and they were they had dropped me from a bunch of classes, you know. How dare they do that? I show up a week late, and why would you drop me? And you know, I'm just I'm just not right in the head, and and so um, got up to Oregon, went to school, and, and came back. I mean, you know, finally, it, well, she moved down to a different she moved down to Haight Ashbury. And, uh, you know, there's just life happening, and, and I had to go. I just, I mean, school was, uh, you know, I don't want to do school. I want to, I, so I went to Haight-Ashbury, and I, and, I, and I showed up there, and, and, you know, this was, again, early 70s, and, and it was changing. But the thing was that I showed up, I was still full of fear. You know, people were talking about love and all of that, and I was full of fear. I couldn't feel it. And so there was all kinds of things wrong. Essentially, what happens is everywhere I go, there I am. And and I was uncomfortable. And I had a list of things that were not working in Haight Ashbury, so I moved to a commune in New Mexico and and I moved in there and um, and I, and I lived there. It's kind of fun, you know. We were standing around one night and everybody was talking about love because so that's what we did as hippies and everything. And they and, and in a moment of honest, you know, honesty or weakness or something, I said, I don't feel it. I don't feel love. And and so they picked me up, literally holding me out horizontally, rocking me back and forth so that I would feel loved. <laughs> I was alone, apart from, lonesome, and I just didn't feel it. You know, something was broken in me, and I don't know when it happened. If you know, I, I think I just came out of the shoot broken. I just could not feel loved or love. Loving, you know, I just, I, I don't know, I just couldn't feel it, and 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 um, uh, I was, uh, you know, it was just fear blocking me from everything. Um, we, my mom was dying of cancer at that time in the hospital of, of in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'd go down and visit her, and I'd I'd, I'd go back up, and, uh, hop a freight, and hop back and go back to the commune, and go down and see her, and and you know, after a month or so, I, I don't know how long it was, I just. The best description I've ever heard is Clancy talks about somebody snuck in in bed night, you know, in his bed at night, and put a spring in there, and they were cranking it up, and and I felt this pressure in me. It's just it's not working. I've got to go, and so I uh, I went down to the hospital. And I said, Mom, I can't stay. I've got to go. I'm leaving you, and going to Virginia Beach. And we said goodbye. And, you know, what I didn't understand is that I am selfish and self-centered. And that was the root of my problem. And I was chasing somewhere down the road where I could be okay. And I just didn't know it. I went back to Virginia Beach and then within a month 
the state police came looking for me and they said, you know, call home. And I called home, my sisters and my mom, I mean, my sisters and my uncle and the rest of the family were coming back from the funeral and I wasn't there. I wasn't a brother. I wasn't a son. I wasn't a nephew. I was just off doing what I was doing. And, um, you know, I, I, I share that because it's going to come back up in my ninth step. I, um, I went home and I closed up the house. I tell my story this way for, for a reason, because, you know, we've not talked about alcoholism. There's no alcohol there, and there's no alcoholic there. Um, and it's obvious that I am crazy as a loon. Um, I think that, for me, it's really important to remember that I am my qualifier for Al-Anon. I marry alcoholic women because I qualify for Alan. I don't qualify for Alan because I marry alcoholic women. And so I suffer from a spiritual malady that I found the solution here for. And there was a lot more downhill for me to go before I found that. But the answer to my spiritual malady is here and in the steps and in the fellowship. And I need to know that. I need to remember that, that that I earned this chair not because of her, but because of me. Um, I was playing music in a coffee house. Now, for those of you who are young, this is not Starbucks. It was, it's, it's not that much different. We'd all go hang out and we'd, uh, you know, we'd, it was dark and smoky playing chess. But I was playing guitar and singing, a street musician and, and a potter at the time. And, and I was, um, one night I was playing music and she walked in. Now, she got my attention. I'd been out praying on the Mesa that day, and, I, you know, God, I just don't know what's right for me. I don't have the wisdom to be where I am. Please show me what I need. And, of course, in his infinite wisdom that night, he sent me an alcoholic. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> But she got my attention that night, and, and so I stopped playing, went over to talk to her, and we began a courtship. Uh, five minutes later, we moved in together. <laughs> my, my sponsor says, you know everything you need to know in five minutes, why wait? Uh, <laughs> and so we began the dance, and... Uh, uh, you know, so almost wasn't working for me anymore. It wasn't per- working for his, her. So we moved to uh, Oregon. And uh, I had a, a home, and we cut the lodge poles and set up my teepee on the side of Mount Hood. And uh, <laughs> One of the things that I noticed when I first met her was I did feel that that power going down to my fingertips. I felt this sense of ease and comfort that came from being with her. Um, and, and I don't choose those words accidentally. They come from the doctor's opinion describing alcoholism uh, and, and the alcoholic's reaction to alcohol. And I experienced that sense of ease and comfort from her. All of a sudden, I was a better guitar player, I was a better musician, I was a better potter, I was comfortable in my own skin for the first time in my life, and it was the most remarkable, amazing feeling to not be consumed with fear and consumed with self. And I was to pursue that feeling to the gates of insanity and death, because I wanted that back. We, we moved to Oregon, and it was wonderful. You know, it was an idyllic time, and we lived on, in the teepee on the side of Mount Hood for... And it lasted for about a month, you know? <laughs> and once again, you know, my surroundings are not where I need to be. If I could only go there, I would be okay. I'm a geographical kind of guy. I mean, you know, it's like I last a few months and then I've got to go. And when I've got to go, I've got to go. And so we left and moved into this mansion over in uh, between Bend and Redmond, Oregon, in Tumalo. And um, uh, it had uh, the guy had been using it as a barn. And so uh, I moved it in and fixed it up and we were living there. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a mansion. It had outdoor plumbing, you know, no water, no... Uh, uh, anything but uh, outhouse, yeah. So we were living there, and uh, my sister-in-law came. 
Now, she's dumped her kids on my doorstep and moved downtown to um, get a job as a barmaid in a bar, a little watering hole in Bend or, or Redmond, Oregon. And I had my first exposure to alcoholism. And I watched her drink in ways that I had never experienced. Uh, my parents drank. They'd buy a case of bourbon and a case of scotch, and it would last for a year or two at parties. And, and uh, I drank more in my home than they ever did. Well, that's not true. But, but, but they, they did not drink to excess. And, and so I watched my sister-in-law, and she did things that uh, a lady didn't do. I mean, you know, it's a great gig being a barmaid if you're an alcoholic woman. And she did all those things to get all those drinks. And I didn't understand I'd never seen that before. I, one Sunday, she had her kids. She'd come and got them and take them down for the weekend, and she was bleeding out of a slit wrist. And nobody told me that's alcoholism. I didn't know. But I got Bobby Joe patched up, and I took her down to a jitter joint in Bend, Oregon. It was just a, you know, it wasn't a treatment center. They didn't have it. It was a detox. You know, they'd strap her down and let her shake it out. And, but I had my first exposure to you. I, uh, they had all these half sentences on the walls, you know, easy does it, live and let live, and, you know, and easy does what, you know? And, <laughs> but, you know, they, um, uh, they certainly seemed to know what to do with her, and I didn't. And when she came out of the, the, the um, detox, she had a big book. And she and I sat down and read that book, and I absolutely loved what I read. I, um, nobody told me to go to Al-Anon. I, you know, um, I know that Al-Anon existed at that time. It was 1974. Uh, Al-Anon was 23 years old, but nobody said that. Uh, if they had told me, I would have said, why? You know, why do I need to go? She has the problem. What's wrong? You know, why would I go? And I, so I didn't go. I just hung out. I went to some open AA meetings with her and, and, uh, and read the book. And, and that's, that's it. And, and we stayed there, my wife and I, for um, some, some time. And then, you know, we had to go. Moved down to eastern Oklahoma. And uh, I bought this little farm, and uh, I was going to have a subsistence farm and raise cattle and horses and chickens. And, but that's, that's a lot of work, I tell you. But, uh, <laughs> but it was very beautiful. And I had my second encounter with, with alcoholism. My father-in-law, I'd worked with him, and he was, uh, he was training cutting horses. And, and I'd worked with him, and it was just a beautiful existence. I mean, you know, he was an amazing guy, and had a touch with horses that was just outstanding. And he was a, you know, a strong, he was a short, banny rooster kind of a guy, but he was an amazing man to work with. And he disappeared. And I went down in Poto, Oklahoma and found him after a month or two. And, and he was living in a flop house. And he's just a shell of the person that I had known. And again, I didn't understand. And he said, Palmer, take me to detox. And so I took him from Poto, Oklahoma to McAllister. He said, buy me a beer. And I'm going, why would I buy you a beer? I'm taking you to detox, for God's sake. And, and he made me understand that he had to have a, a beer to get from the, the hour drive from one place to the next because he was seeing things that I didn't see. He was feeling things crawling on his skin that I, as far as I was concerned, were not there. But I bought him a beer and took him to detox. And again, I see these half sentences on the wall. And, and uh, um, you know, I was exposed to you again. And it was, uh, it was more comfortable. Again, they could take care of him where I could not. My wife started drinking a lot. And she was drugging a lot. And that wasn't really a problem for me because, like I said, I'm not a teetotaler now. And I, I, I love this one, this one place back in the hills. It was so far back in the mountains that it didn't have electricity. The rural electrical co-op hadn't gone there. So they, they had Honda generators to make electricity. And you could buy Budweiser beer or moonshine, whatever you want. And uh, I love going back there playing music. And I love that Oklahoma moonshine. And um, I would go... I would go up there with her a lot. Now, I would go up there because you can't trust her to go up there on her own. <laughs> There's some Alanons in here, I can tell that. You understand. 
I would do some crazy things because I couldn't allow her to go up there on her own. I remember one time David Allen Coe was playing up there. Now, I don't know if you know who he is, but he attracts some real outlaws, bikers and big people. And I, like I said, I'm a wimp, you know, but I signed on as security because she needed me to watch. I mean, what am I going to do? Walk up to a big biker and say, gee, sir, excuse me, would you please put your gun away? You know, it's like... And yet, I would place myself in a position to be harmed because I had to watch. Um, I, I mean, that's crazy. I remember, you know, I became a detective and I'd look at what she was doing and I'd, I'd walk in the house and I could assess from, uh, you know, what cigarettes were and what ashtrays, what had been going on. And, you know, at least I would think I could. I don't know, but I, I was pretty sure what was going on in the house and yet I couldn't do anything about it. And, I, you know... Um, Bill Wilson, when he wrote the chapter to wives, he described my home. I hated that chapter the first time I read it. You know, I had all kinds of reasons why I hated it that, you know, don't he, doesn't he know there are men who live with alcohol, you know. But the reason I really hated it was that it, he, he looked in my window and he described my home. You know, the, the, the affairs and the retaliatory affairs and the, the, blame, the lives of the blameless children and wives, and in this case, husband. And, you know, I was really good at being pitiful, Palmer. And, um, you know, people would say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay, you know. <laughs> I got a lot of mileage out of that sympathy. You know, I did. And, and uh, I used that. And, and uh, um but, you know, things go downhill. I remember one night she went to, uh, she said, I'm going to a party up at the lake. And I couldn't go because I had something I was doing at the farm. I don't know. And she left. And, and there was a point just after dark where I had no defense against that first thing. <laughs> I, uh, I had to go see what she was doing, with whom she was doing it. And I just had to go now. And, of course, now that's a problem because she had the truck. So what do I do? I hop on my tractor. <laughs> and, so I did a drive-by sighting uh, at, at night, no moonlight. I'm going up and over these hairpin turns down to the lake, you know, on my, on my tractor. And uh, um, it, it had no muffler. And so, you know... <laughs> If they were there, they could hear me coming from a half mile away. And I thought I was being sneaky. I, I got to the lake, and, and of course there was nobody there. Now, I don't know if there was nobody there. They may have been out hiding in the weeds, just having hooting and hollering and laughing because of this fool who was coming up to see what they were doing. Or maybe she was never there. I don't know, but when I got there and I saw nobody at the lake... My brain says, oh, it's okay. They're not here. And it never occurred to me, where are they? It just, it was, it was okay. And so I got back on my tractor and back up these hairpin turns down to the farm. You know, it's just, it's just nuts. And, and uh, my family got nuts. Now, I had this need to look good to the neighbors and I had to maintain this facade um, that we were okay, thank you very much. We, we started losing friends. Because, you know, you can't have friends who know what's going on in your home if you don't want them to know what's going on in your home. And so we had fewer and fewer and fewer friends. And one uh, Friday night we were supposed to go in and see a, a movie on TV with these friends and um, the night arrived, and she said, I'm, I don't feel good, you go. And I said, well, I'll stay with you. She said, no, you go. <laughs> and so I did. I was dismissed. And uh, I went. I don't remember what the movie was. I really didn't pay much attention because my mind was back on the farm, what was going on, who she was with, and what they were doing, and, and stuff that I just really didn't need to know. But um, it was some horror movie Friday, the 13th or Freddy or something. I don't know. But... <laughs> I left and went home. When I got home, there was a rifle sticking out the door, and she said, get the hell out and don't you ever come back. 
And it's like, whoa. I mean, you know, the, 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 the four horsemen there was right there. Terror. You know, I was bewildered. I was terrified. I didn't know this was alcoholism. I was just scared. And I went off to Arkansas. And, and uh, pretty soon her attorney called and said she's suing me for divorce. And I'm going, why? I just went and watched a movie. I, that's what you told me to do. <laughs> so I... Uh, he said, please come, we need a meeting. And I went to the attorney's office, and, and, um, and, and she was there. And she said, Palmer, I don't know what was the matter with me. Please come home, I need you. You know, <clears throat> for the Allen on that, I need you, is kind of like a mainline shot for the junkie. Like, <laughs> so... I fired my lawyer on the spot and went home. I mean, of course I did. She needs me. You know, it's occurred to me later in recovery that probably a normal person, if there is such a thing as a normie, might think twice about going home to somebody who had held a gun on them two weeks previous. But that thought never occurred to me. She needed me. Um... I had to take the rifle back to my, my one other one friend who lived up the road because she'd borrowed it from him. <laughs> and of course, in a small farming community, everybody knows everybody's business. And, and so I, uh, I had to explain why she'd used his gun to run me off into Arkansas. And, and of course... I also didn't want to admit alcohol or drugs in the home. So I said, well, Jack, I think she suffers from PMS. And, uh, <laughs> I, could, I could blame it on that and not say anything about alcoholism. My mother-in-law came down and she, she said, Palmer, is she drinking? Is she drugging? And, of course, again, maintaining that facade. I said, no, Mom, she's, she's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. Thank you very much. Um, my wife said, you know, the reason we're having problems is that you're gone all the time. If you would just be home, I would be okay. Now, of course, that's easy to fix. I quit my job and moved home. I mean, you know, I'm there. And, of course, then we're broke. I'm home, and you're home, and, uh, you know, it just didn't get any better. It's just, it's just, it, it gets, keeps going downhill on that slide. I, um, we went to this, this um, counselor. They call it couples therapy today, I think. But we went to this, this counselor, and she convinced him that it was all my fault. She drank because I... And then you fill in the blank. I mean, it was a different reason every day, but for something that I did something or didn't do something, and so she drank. And he thought that I was probably the problem. And so I started doing everything I could to make it where she was comfortable and where she wouldn't drink. Uh, you know, we had we had a child and my son, and I'd you know I'd yell at him to make him be quiet and and uh, so that she wouldn't get drunk. And you know, years later, he he uh, you know he he knew what was wrong with mom. She was drunk. What she what he said was, "What's wrong with dad? I don't know what's wrong with you." There wasn't any sign. You know, I wasn't the one drinking, and yet I was the one who was insane in my family. Um, and the counselor was right. I was the crazy one in my family. She was just having a good time getting drunk. And I was crazy. Um, I decided that if I could just go back to school and get a job at near home. Because, I mean, I had a high school education, and, and I couldn't get a job. You know, I'd tell people I'm smart, but they didn't believe me because all I had was a high school education. And so I decided to get a teaching job. And, and I know there's some teachers in here because this is an Al-Anon meeting. But, um, <laughs> so... Forgive me, um, I, I decided that if I got my teaching certificate, I could be home at 2 or 3 and go to work at 9, and I'd get my summers off. It would be an easy gig. I know that's not true. I'm a teacher today. But I told you I, was, I have a thinking disorder. So, uh, 
So I went to school and I was gone. I moved to, I was, the farm was three hours away from the University of Oklahoma and I'd commute on Monday morning to get up at four o'clock in the morning and go up to the University of Oklahoma to get my, my degree in teaching, uh, my teaching certificate. And I'd come home on Thursday or Friday and, and, um, I do these Allen on Brownouts. You know, I'd, I, I think some of you may know about this. You know, I would drive home and I would be so obsessed with her, mentally obsessed with what she was doing, what the fight would be about this weekend. I was all up here and I would drive for an hour or an hour and a half and I would not remember the road. I'm, I'm so grateful I didn't kill somebody because I was gone. I was not there during the drive. I, it was just a, I call it my Allen on brownout. I mean, it's just like a blackout. I wasn't there because of the obsession of the mind. My mother-in-law came down again and she said, Palmer, is she drinking? And I said, no, Mom. And she said, well, she's really acting weird. You're acting weird. What's going on? Now, she knew the family disease of alcoholism. There's a reading in our ODAP that says that it's often easier to spot an alcoholic home by the actions of the spouse than it is the actions of the alcoholic. And that was certainly true, and my mother-in-law recognized it. I mean, she was married to the guy who took to detox uh, uh, many years before, and and so um, she knew. She said, Palmer, I want to tell you a story. There was a lady that was living with a bad drunk, and she would, uh, uh, you know, she'd always try to make him not drink and make him where he didn't have to drink. And finally she came to him one day and she said, is there anything I can do that will help you to stop drinking? And he said, sure, I think if you go out and dig a dozen worms and bread them and fry them, I could eat those worms and that would help me to stop drinking. And so, sure, she jumped right up, went out and dug a dozen fat choice worms, brought them in, fried, you know, breaded them, fried them, put them on a platter all beautifully laid out, and brought them to him. And he said, you eat half. Well, we'll go to any length. So she cut them in half, and she ate half. He proceeded to get a bottle of bourbon and get drunk. And she's wondering, why? Why? I, mean, what, I, I dug the worms, I ate the worms, and now you're getting drunk. Why? He said, yeah, you ate the wrong half. <laughs> I, I burst into tears when I heard that because I finally understood the futility of everything that I had done for years to make her stop drinking. That was my moment of clarity with the first step that I'm absolutely powerless over alcohol. That I could do nothing. I mean, I had tried bending myself into a pretzel to make her not drink. And it was never going to work. And I was absolutely powerless. And she said, Palmer, you've got to go to Al-Anon. You've got to go to Al-Anon. I didn't go that night, but I went back up to school. And uh, it, was, it was a week or two later on a Thursday night. We had this just brutal, wicked fight over the telephone. And I just gave up. I didn't know what to do. I had no more options and I didn't know. And so I remembered her saying, you've got to go to Al-Anon. So I looked in the phone book. I could not find Al-Anon in the phone book. I found AA, probably because it's easier to spell. I don't know. <laughs> and I called AA. And I'm so grateful for fellowships like this where the family recovers together. Because they had at that meeting place, they had AA in one room, Al-Anon in another room, Alateen in a third room. I think they had Al-A-Dog and Al-Cat and Al-A-Tot and everything else. <laughs> but they were committed to family recovery. And one of the guys who took the phone, an alcoholic, he had such compassion for me, a member of the family, I mean, I was just blubbering. I didn't know what to do. You know, and, and he said, just a minute, there's somebody I think that can help you. And I was blabbering to her. And, and she said, Palmer, I think that we can help. We meet here Sunday, Monday, and Wednesday. Um, come in and we'll talk to you. Well, that was uh, Thursday night. Friday I went home to the farm and, and I just couldn't wait because there was something that somebody might give me that would make it okay. And so Monday, March 5th of 1990, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. And the only thing that I can say is that I was home. 
I didn't hear anything, but I was home. I mean, it was just, I was home. And I was safe, and I was out of fear for that hour. I was just okay. I didn't hear anything really. I mean, I heard the three C's, that I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. And that was just amazing information for me because I didn't know that I didn't cure it. I'd been, I mean, I didn't cause it. I had been told for years that it was she drank because I, and then you fill in the blank. You know, I had done something or I hadn't done something, and it was like a raison de jour. Whatever day it was, it was a different reason and that I thought I had caused her to drink. And they said, no, Palmer, she probably drinks because she's an alcoholic. You didn't cause it. And they said one other thing. They said, Palmer, you don't have to live this way if you don't want to. And I'm grateful for that. They told me to come to six meetings, and if I didn't like it after six meetings, they would gladly uh, refund my misery. You know, I didn't like that. But I kept coming. Now, my wife didn't want me to come. She was threatening, threatened by me going to Al-Anon. I don't know why, but she was furious. And when she found out, and she would threaten all kinds of things, never very good if I went. And I just kept going. I would drive home for the weekends and drive back up uh, to Norman and uh, go to meetings through the week. And, and uh, about a month later, two months later, I was home on the weekend and, you know, I had spent a lot of time, do I stay, do I go, what do I do? And they said, don't worry about that. You just do this thing one day at a time when you know you will know about that problem. And, I, you know, I'm going, what, what do you mean when I know I'll know? I mean, what does that mean? But one Friday night I'd just gotten home and she was furious. She was stomping around the house, and she pulled out a butcher knife, and I was sitting on it, laying on a cot, and she held over my throat and said, you're going to have to go sleep one of these times, and when you do, you're a dead man. I just rolled over and went to sleep. I didn't care. You know, I just didn't care. And I woke up in the morning, and I realized that one, she hadn't carried her threat out, but, uh, but two, I realized that I had attempted suicide that night. She was the instrument, and I had gotten to such a state of despair that I just didn't care and didn't want to live anymore. And that was my moment where I absolutely surrendered. I got out of bed and I said, God, help me. God, please help me. And he did. I left the home, I left the farm, I left my dog, I left my son, I left my wife, and I went back up to Norman, Oklahoma, and I moved into, well, I left my truck for a while, and then I moved in with some friends that had just gotten out of a halfway house, and of course, who else am I going to find? <laughs> and I moved in on their couch, and I proceeded to, we had meetings there at that house three times a day, you know, and then I'd go to meetings of Al-Anon, I went to open AA meetings, any time a door opened, I was there trying to go to a meeting, and, and um, I, I loved that, I loved it. Now, I, um, I remember they kept doing this thing about get a sponsor, you've got to get a sponsor, and, and it was all these old women that were in these meetings, you know, and, and, and I say old because they were probably 10, 15 years younger than I am today, but at the time, it seemed like old women. And, and, and I was starting to say, well, you don't understand. My case is different. I'm a man, and I live with alcoholism, and it's not the same. And one of these old-timers took me aside, and she said, Palmer, I want you to listen for similarities, not differences. And that hit me. I started listening. And I was hearing my story, and it didn't matter whether you were women who were married or whether you had kids who were uh, alcoholics or whether you'd grown up in an alcoholic home. It was the same story about the family disease of alcoholism with maybe subtle differences. You know, I, I find that, um, you know, if you go and, and get flu, you don't really spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether you got it at the theater or you got it at the grocery store or you got it at school. You just have flu and you take the medicine. And, and that's kind of what they told me. Palmer, it doesn't matter where you got this family disease of alcoholism. You have this disease and here's the solution. And I said, okay. 
And not long after that, this guy came through. And literally, when I say it was all women, I didn't know that there were men in Al-Anon. And after that, I didn't care. But this guy came through, and I asked him if he'd sponsor me. And he said, sure. And so after a, a week of uh, you know being in meetings with him, he said, Palmer, I want you to go home and write a list. I want you to write one thing for which you're grateful. And I said, you want me to do what? I mean, have you not been listening to me? She, 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 she. And he said, yes, I want you to write one thing for which you're grateful and bring it back for me tomorrow. And so I went home and I thought and I thought and I worked on it. And I and finally, the only thing I could write on my list is I'm grateful. I only have to write one damn thing on the gratitude list. <laughs> And that's what I wrote. And so I figured that that would be the end of this exercise. He'll see the light now. And I took it back to him and he said, that's great. Now I want you to write two things tonight. And then it was three things and then it was five things. And, and you know, after a couple of weeks, I found that I was grateful. I, I had a truck, I had an extra pair of jeans, I had my guitar, and, and you know, it was, uh, I, I had meetings to go to, I had a couch to sleep on. I mean, you know, it was uh, the very things the week before I had been upset and they were on the other side of the list migrated over to these are the things I have gratitude for. I found something really important. You know, I don't have to believe that these solutions will work. I just have to take the actions and the feelings will follow. Chuck C. used to say that you can't think your way into good living. You have to live your way into good thinking. And I think that's absolutely true. It's my experience. When I do what my sponsor says, even though I don't believe it's going to work, it follows, and I feel better for having taken the actions. Um, he started me immediately into the steps. And so um, I, we looked at the first step. I mean, it really wasn't hard for me to see that I was powerless over alcohol. I had, li I had managed my way into a state of homelessness, living in my pickup truck, you know. And, and uh, I, so, yeah, I, I, you know, and I couldn't fight with alcohol. Every time I get in the ring with alcoholism, I'm defeated. Every time. And it's painful. And, I, you know, so first step wasn't a big deal. Uh, the second step, however, was a little stretch. He was kind of saying that I'm insane. You know, I don't think so. And he said, well, Palmer, tell me, what was that thing about the tractor? <laughs> like, okay, okay. But, you know, with the second step, I did have this sense of hope. Because, you know, we laugh a lot in Al-Anon, and, and I love that feeling of laughter and that sound of laughter. And I had, there was no laughter going on in my life and my home until I got to you. And I wanted what you had, and, and, and I began to feel this sense of hope that maybe if I did what you did, I would get what you had gotten. And I love that feeling, that sense of hope that comes in the second step that maybe I'm going to turn myself over to you and let's see where this goes. And I, it, it happened. And then, you know, then we got to the third step and I knew it was coming. I'd seen it on your walls. And, you know, you can disguise it by saying HP or higher power, but I know what you're talking about and it's this God thing. And I'm sorry, I don't do God. And uh, my sponsor took me into some uh, literature and it said he showed me in there where it says that to be doomed to an alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. And that got my attention because see I'm looking at do I want to go back to the farm or do I really want to do this third step thing that you're talking about and do the God thing that you're talking about? And I'm doing this debate. You know, sanity has not been re re you know, restored. And then it says, do you believe or are you willing to believe in a power greater than yourself? And, and I had to tell him that, yeah, I was willing, but I didn't believe. And he said, that's all we ask. That's all you need is to be willing to believe. Um, so we knelt down on our knees, held hands, and said the third step prayer. 
I love that prayer. Relieve me of the bondage of self. I didn't know that self had been my problem. I thought she was my problem. And all the time, all along, from when I started, self, being steeped in self, wrapped in self, was my problem. And I didn't know that. Um, It says in there also that either God is or he isn't. He's either everything or he's nothing. What is your choice to be? I didn't know that I had made a choice that there is no God. But it was a choice. And he gave me the ability to choose that, yeah, there is a God. And I made that choice. And so I started out on this journey uh, because it says, you know, all this decision is of great importance. It's of little permanent value or something to that effect unless followed at once by rigorous action. And I got sent into the fourth step. And I looked and I did all these resentments. And a lot of them were at her. And, of course, I found out in the uh, inventory the same thing that most everybody find out. Instead of having hundreds of resentments at different people, I had about four resentments hundreds of times. It all came down to about four of my character defects, which made me resent everybody and everything that breathed there and institutions. And, and, and so, you know, it gave me the power. I love that freedom because, see, if she is my problem, it's helpless, hopeless. It will never get any better because I can't change her. If I'm the problem, there's immediately a solution, and I found that. I, uh, I didn't want to take the fifth step because I really knew that if I admitted to you what I'm really like, the core of my being, that you would reconsider. Well, Palmer, I know we told you you were welcome here, but, but you know, on reflection, you're too bad. You're just not good enough to be here. And that's not what happened. I knew that's what he was going to say. And he said, yeah, I did that. I did this. And, and it was like, he said, Palmer, we love you. You know, I love you. And, and I didn't know that. I, I was a legend in my own mind. I thought I was so bad and it was just like garden variety out on stuff that I had done. And, you know, and, and, and that was just remarkable to me. Um, I went into the sixth and seventh step and, and I started taking them. And I was at this party one time and uh, there were about ten people in the room And something was wrong, and I knew it was wrong, and I stepped off to the side to see what it was that was wrong in in me, uh, doing this little mini inventory kind of thing, and I realized what was wrong was I was absolutely comfortable with all these people. I was carrying on a conversation with ten people, and I was comfortable in my own skin. I don't know when it happened, I just noticed that all of a sudden it was okay. I was, uh, I was being loved and loving. And, you know, that thing that I know was broken in me when I started, I, you know, in the commune where they were rocking me, all of a sudden it had been fixed. <laughs> While I was out doing these stupid things like gratitude lists and inventories and, and uh, going to meetings and washing ashtrays and doing all the stuff, the commitments that I was given... Somehow that stuff was being fixed, and I didn't know it because my attention was over here, and it was fixed in the background. Made remarkable, and I mean, it was the promises, uh, the fifth step promises coming to coming to life in me. I was comfortable. I was uh, I was having a spiritual experience with these people, and and I, I you know the the faith or belief in God somehow had just arrived, and I don't know where it came from. I don't know. I got to, my sponsor quit about that time. He graduated. I don't know where he went. I, I you know, he just left. And, and I don't know if he's okay or not. He just left. And so I decided, well, you know, I've got two and a half years of program. I can probably sponsor myself. <laughs> Bad idea. But I tell you, you know, it's a great deal if you're sponsoring yourself. You know, I'd want to watch a movie some night and my sponsor would say, well, you ought to. That's a good idea. Don't go to meetings. <laughs> and resentments are great, too. You know, I'd tell my sponsor, I've got this resentment. And he'd say, well, you should. You earned that. <laughs> and I started getting crazy, and I knew why. I had to get another sponsor. And so I asked the guy to be my sponsor, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm with him and, and my grand sponsor today. And, and uh, you know, I just, I love that. And, and uh, you know, he started me through the steps again. We got up to the eighth step, and, of course, who was first on the list was my mom. 
You know, I'd run off leaving her dying in the, in the um, hospital. And I'd carried that guilt for a lot of years. Um, and how do you fix that? You know, she's dead. You can't go and make face-to-face amends. And, and, I, and this guy from Southern California, Clint Hodges, Clint H., who uh, he's dead now. So, But he talked and he said that he had gone to the gravesite in Billings, Montana and read a letter to his mom. And I went and talked to this over my sponsor, and, and uh, that's what he suggested I do. So I wrote this letter and gave it to him, and we made some changes, and I went out, flew out to Los Alamos, New Mexico, and I went down to the cemetery, and, and I sat with my mom, and my dad was buried there too, and I sat with them and read this letter and cried and, and cleaned up the grave and read and sat there. and um, I had great contempt. You know, this isn't going to work. She's dead. It's not going to work. Why am I doing this? And that's what my brain was telling me while I was taking the action. I came out of the canyon, and the first person I ran into was my mom's dearest friend. And uh, she said, what were you doing today? And I said, I was just hanging out, Becky. She said, Palmer, what were you doing today? And I said, Becky, I was just hanging out. She said, no, really, what were you doing today? I mean, it was bizarre. She was drilling, and she would not take a fluff-off answer. And I said, well, Becky, I needed to make amends to Mom because I had abandoned her while she was dying and left. And I had to go down and read a letter at the gravesite. And Becky started laughing. Not what I was expecting, but (laughs) she was just laughing. And she said, Palmer, I was with your mother the day that you left. And she was overjoyed that you were leaving. (laughs) That was not what I expected either. She said, Palmer, your mom knew that you would be devastated by her dying more than any of the other children, my two sisters. And she didn't want you to go through that. And so she was very grateful that you were going to be on the East Coast. I don't know what the odds are that I would take an action I did not believe was going to work. Um, But I'd take the action, go down, read a letter, and come out and meet my mom's dearest friend who was going to lift that hook of guilt off my shoulders just like that. It was gone. It was okay that I was not there. Um, I love that step. You know, I know today that there is a God and that God is working through these steps. I absolutely know that to be true because there is no way that I could look at this incident and know that's not God, the hand of God. Betty Ann was talking about, uh, you know, at the International. If you've ever got that experience, if you haven't, go. You know, I, it was amazing sitting there in, in San Antonio with the, in that dome with uh, 60,000 people all of a sudden get quiet to say the serenity prayer. You know, and it just there's just no way that there can't be a God. I know that there is. I, uh, I was uh, given a chance to make amends to my sister. My, my, my two sisters didn't know if they had a brother anymore. When I was out running around the country... Um, you know, they didn't know if I had died on the road hitchhiking. They didn't know if I had uh, um, blown out my brains from whatever it was that I was doing with whatever people I was doing it with. I had to make amends to them, and I had to go face them, and I had to. One of the things that I had to do with them was just be a brother and call them once a month, send them birthday cards, send them just Easter cards or whatever. And I had to learn how to do that, and I started doing it. They didn't really trust me. Well, of course they didn't. I was not trustworthy. I had left them and abandoned them too. But over several years, I had done this and followed through, and I became their brother. A few years ago, I was at the hospital with my little sister. As her husband lay dying, I was able to be there of support to her. And I said, Betsy, let's go downstairs and get a cup of coffee. You need to get out of here. We went down. And she burst into tears because her daughter was uh, out drinking and gotten in trouble. And I was able to 12-step my little sister. You know, that's the hand of God directing. Because if I hadn't made amends, I wouldn't be there. Thank God for these steps. Thank God for Alan. I am just so grateful. You know, it patched up things with my big sister, the genius, you know. Um, and I was able to be with her. When... Um, 
I started to date another gal, and uh, you know we did do a courtship, and, and uh, uh, after a time we got married, and, and um, I noticed on the honeymoon, gosh, she drinks a lot. <laughs> and indeed she did. Uh, she started, she, you know, she started blackout drinking very quickly. My sponsor laughs. He says, you know, we don't cause it, can't cure it, can't control, but we're going to make an exception in your case. <clears throat> We think you infected her, so. Uh, <laughs> she's one of those women described in the big book that goes downhill very fast, and she did. And, and uh, I came home from school one day, and, and uh, I'd been offered a trip to go to graduate school, and, and I did. I was in graduate school and studying at, at Oklahoma again, University of Oklahoma again. And, and so I uh, came home, and my little dog met me, and she would not let me go anywhere but up the stairs. And I went up the stairs. And I found my wife uh, almost dead in the bathroom. You know, she had been drunk and decided to end it all and uh, take a bunch of pills. And I gathered her up, called 911, got her to the hospital, and they pumped her out, you know, put her on a breathing machine. She was on, you know, I didn't know she was going to live. I didn't know that. And uh, because she was on a breathing machine and it didn't look good for the home team. And um, I... Uh, uh, I called you. I called my tribe, and they came in. My sponsor came up from Lawton, and and um, we were sitting in the the, the you know the um, ICU waiting room having a meeting, and and you know I knew that I was loved. I knew that you were there supporting me, and I knew that I loved you. And um, you know my wife came out of it, and and uh, uh, scared her sober for a year. She picked up one chip. And something, you know, life happened and she was drinking again. You know, she came to that point where she had no defense against that first drink and I saw it happen. But, you know, I'm here to tell you that I've done alcoholism in the family with, with me having no program. And I've done alcoholism in the home with me having a program. And I guarantee you that it is easier for me having a program. It doesn't mean that life doesn't happen. I mean, it does happen. But I was able to be happy whether she drank or not. What an amazing promise that's in our opening. You know, that, that you can be happy whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. And I was, you know, and I went to meetings and I went to school and I went to meetings and, and I met her in the morning when she was was sober and, and, um, and we did okay. Um, she couldn't get sober again. I graduated from the University of Oklahoma. They kicked me out of uh, the University of Oklahoma with a Ph.D. in chemistry. You know, what an amazing thing. The stupid one in my family. You know, there is no road that goes from being a homeless guy in a truck looking like Charlie Manson to a Ph.D. in chemistry. That road does not exist. And yet you... God, sponsorship, the steps, taking direction one day at a time, I was released with this doctor. You know, I, I don't know how that happens. I don't know where that comes from. I, um, I got a job offer in uh, Miami, Florida. And so we went down there and I took on a job. I'm on the faculty at a university in Miami. And, and uh, you know, it's amazing to me. You know, it, it says that... Um, I always asked God to remove my caretaking when I got to the seventh step. You know, it caused me so much problem trying to take care of people that didn't want to be taken care of. And, um, and yet God didn't remove that. He gave me a job as a caretaker. All I do every day is take care of God's kids. And I'm so grateful at it. And, and I'm, I'm really, you know, they say, the students say, you know, you're not like any other professor here. Um, because I get to take care of them. You know, that's what God's given me to do is to take care of them. They don't understand that I bring these principles with me every day in my job and that I, uh, um, I'm working on my program with them. They know and sense that something is different, but they don't know what it is. My wife uh, kept drinking, and finally, after being on a breathing machine twice, uh, she still couldn't stop. She couldn't stop the second time. And, and one Thanksgiving, we were uh, cooking turkey for our family. The kids were down, and, and she got drunk and passed out. And I called my sponsor twice. I had a resentment. And, um, and finally, I put the dinner together, and we sat down to eat. And she came in to uh, kind of scratch around the plate when she woke up and um, wasn't really interested in eating. But she sobered up not long after that. And 
few years ago we were talking as a couple in a meeting recovery, I mean a, a, an anniversary, and she related this story. She said one Thanksgiving I passed out, got drunk and passed out and burned the turkey in my and I'm so ashamed that my family had seen me pass out drunk that I redoubled my effort and surrendered and she got sober. I think it's so interesting that the event that I perceived as a two-sponsor call, resentment day, that how dare she get drunk and all of this, was the event that I had prayed for, that it was her bottom. I don't know what's good for me. When I think something good for me is very often bad for me. When I think something bad for me, it's very often the best thing in the world. And that was one of those events that I had prayed for and didn't recognize when it came. I think today that, that what I've learned out of that is I just, I just let things unfold. God's really, really smart about organizing what goes on, and I really am not. So today my job is to just let it unfold. Um, She's got 14 years of sobriety now, and, and uh, you know, it's a, we have a home that is, you know, we've got we've got AA and Al-Anon in our home, and we've got, you know, there's days where I'm talking in one room, the guys I sponsor, and she's talking to the gals, and and we have, you know, we have to schedule the 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 12-step room for, uh, you know, because sometimes I'm doing 12-step with somebody, and she's doing 12-step work with somebody, and you know, we have to do it in two rooms, and I mean, you know, it's just. Our home is an AA Al-Anon home, and I just absolutely cherish that. God has, through this program, a way to put a family back together that is just outstandingly remarkable. I don't know how to do that. I don't have the power to do that. And yet, when I focus on what I need to do, God works around, puts the family back together. And I think that's really important to know. Um, I love my life today. Absolutely love my life today. I love the life that God's given me. I love going to meetings. I love Al-Anon. I didn't tell you that I'm here from my home group as the Kendall Stepping Up group in Miami, Florida. I also go to an open AA meeting. I'm committed open AA meeting. I go every week without fail. You know, I'm their pet Al-Anon. And uh, <laughs> the mascot at Sable Palm uh, Sunday Recovery and, and uh, Sunday Serenity Meeting. And, and uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I know that when I'm there and they get somebody in, a spouse, they say, well, go talk to Palmer. Because they know, you know, that, that I am there. And uh, um, I love that. And when they get in trouble with their spouses or kids or whatever, they come to talk to me. And we have a meeting that welcomes them in and says that, sure, you can come in. You know, you got a problem with somebody who drinks? Welcome. I love that. Um, I was at a funeral for a dear friend of mine. Her father had died. This was quite a few years ago. And the minister mentioned in his eulogy grace, the word grace. And I realized, I don't know what this means. I mean, we say there but for the grace of God go I. But I didn't know what it meant. So I went home and I looked it up too. And probably the same source is uh, uh, I use Webster's Dictionary. And it says in there, grace is unmerited divine assistance given man for his sanctification or regeneration. Now, I wasn't really very close to understanding that. <laughs> I understand regeneration. You know, to be made over, to be made again, to be made anew, to be reborn. I understand that. Sanctification, I'd look that up in the same book. And it says um, to be set free. I understand that today. What you have done for me is you have set me free. I didn't do anything to earn this. None of us have done anything to earn this. It's a privilege that we get to sit in our seat. And as long as we sit in our seat and continue to do, do the things that we're suggested that we do, we have a daily reprieve. So I've been made anew. I've been reborn. I've been set free. Thank you for my life. Thank you.